Hello and welcome back to Willosophy. I am Will Anderson. Uh, I am the host of the show. This is a podcast, if you've not listened before, that I started uh, about a year ago. In fact, uh, over a year ago. My first guest was Todd Sampson, who you're going to hear today. This is the old episode, the first original episode of Willosophy. Uh, but if, if you've just started listening to the podcast, maybe you listened to the first episode already with uh, John Safran. Uh, if you have not, go and check that out. It's a really uh, fabulous episode about his amazing book. Uh, please read his book. I'm not going to bang on too much uh, here at the start. I'll explain more as we go on. But basically, uh, just to cut to the chase, uh, last year I started this podcast, Philosophy. I wanted to talk to interesting people about uh, whether they had a philosophy of life or love or work or anything, and if that philosophy had changed and how they applied it to their life. That was kind of the aim of the podcast. And we did a few episodes and, and, and then it stopped. And it stopped for a couple of reasons. It stopped because I was on the road and it was uh, almost impossible for me to get guests for it. Uh, my other podcast, TOFOP, if you've not checked that out, T-O-F-O-P, um, is a more comedy podcast and it was easy for me to get comedians on the road and do that uh, regularly, but it was hard for me to get guests for this. The second thing was, uh, as I explained a couple of times, and you'll hear it uh, kind of unfold as the episodes go on and that's normally how I like to explain things I don't want to have some grand sweeping ge- uh, sweeping generalization of what this podcast will be it will be different things for different people but I also will explain it to you as I go because my mind changes on it so what I've done is I've put up the first episode that's the new episode uh, what I'm going to aim to do this year is put up regular episodes but I would like it to be a balance uh, of male and female guests that's just one of my aims for the year um, you'll hear a little bit of why that's one of my philosophies uh, unfold through the podcast uh, so basically with new episodes Hopefully, uh, we'll have an even balance of male and female guests. Uh, that's one of the things I'm aiming to do. Uh, however, I just thought, you know, uh, because people wanted to hear the old episodes, or maybe you're new to the podcast and you'd like to hear the old episodes, so I'm going to put all those episodes up now. So uh, we've got one new episode with John Safran. We'll put up all the old episodes, and then from then on, we'll have a, a you know, hopefully, have a, a pretty even balance after that. So I just wanted to explain that. Um, it will also make sense uh, because I have a conversation with Lauren Freed at the end of it. Um, about uh, the fact that I'd only had male guests up till then. So I thought for that conversation to make sense, uh, then I would put all these ones up in order. You can download them, you can listen to them, you can kind of see what happened. Uh, the other thing I was going to say is I haven't changed these episodes. So um, I've put some music at the start and each of them will have a little introduction, I imagine. But um, uh, other than that, I've left them unchanged. So now that I've put some music in, you'll hear conversations with me saying that we don't have any music and all those sort of things. But I just thought I would leave them as they pretty much originally were, but I've just packaged them up a little bit. Uh, last but not least, a little plug. Uh, if you're in Sydney, January 19, I'll be doing the final night of my Woolluminati tour. Uh, at the Sydney Opera House we're taping that for a big special so um, it's selling pretty well but if you want to come and see that that'd be cool and uh, my new show Free Will is on sale in uh, Adelaide March and Melbourne already so uh, thanks to everyone who's already bought tickets to that Uh, so that will be next year's tour Free Will so uh, anyway I'm not going to bang on too much Uh, please enjoy uh, the original first episode of Philosophy uh, with Todd Sampson cheers Oh, and I also should give a big thanks to Nick at St. Hughes, um, who provided the intro music. Uh, he sent that to me, so please check out his music uh, as the podcasts go on. Over the next uh, few weeks, I will uh, give you more details and uh, let you know how you can check him out if you enjoy that music. But I should give him a shout-out as well. Thanks, mate.
Hello and welcome to Willosophy. It is my brand new podcast. Uh, we have a guest in our brand new podcast. We might as well introduce him and then I'll explain what the podcast is and then he can learn what it is at the same time, basically. Sounds like a good idea. And I can make it up at the same time. Look, here's the thing. I thought I could plan out this podcast really, really well. Oh, I should mention Todd Sampson is the other voice. Oh, thank you. Because well. I was about to then just start talking about the podcast. Hello, Todd Sampson. Hello, everyone. Um, so uh, this is called Willosophy and the idea was I wanted a podcast where I could talk to people that I find really interesting about what their philosophy was like you know was there something that they figured that they knew about life or that there was there a white you know a kind of a saying or a motto or a uh, you know a philosophy by which they lived their life and i thought if i talked to enough interesting people and we talked about why that was their philosophy then people could listen to this in a row and they could like hear interesting people say what they think the meaning of life is and what they think about life and then I could start a religion so, <laughs> so, so basically Todd you're first off the rank and before we get into like Scientology like I need to hold something right I know now. it is like yeah I'm going to put you on an e-meter in just a minute <laughs> <laughs> it's right. not Carl Sandilands you're not going to be on a lie detector it'll be fine God. but you said something interesting to me as a man that people will know probably from uh, you know firstly uh, I imagine if they're coming to this podcast the tv show that we do together the Gruen shows uh but they also might know you from the project they might know you from your television show redesign my brain which we'll get to and they might just they might know you from the advertising world where you know you have been very successful for a very long time but then on the way into us recording this podcast you said something that blew my mind Uh-oh. you said i like your books but i don't read books yes i don't read you don't read no my parents never learned to read or write so we never had any books at home they never went to school so dad in fact my father learned to read when my youngest sister was born because he read the kids books and is that learned. right yeah yeah no so they were learning to read at the same time almost. My, my dad learned to read with my sister my God. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. That is amazing. Yeah, like they don't even read the one newspaper. Night, one night she would read the book. The next night he would read the book. <laughs> no, if he, he, he looked beside his bed and he's got all these kids' books. You think if you were someone else and you right. walked in and saw that a grown man. Oh, yeah. We, kid, we need what? to get the authorities That's involved. Yeah, exactly. Why is he reading that <laughs> and stuff? And why is he driving an ice cream truck slowly by schools? Well, let's start there then. So why tell us about where you grew up and why your parents uh, were in a situation where they wouldn't be able to read. Because hmm. yeah. that's interesting to people. Yeah, I, I was born in Sydney, Nova Scotia, so North Sydney to Canada, Sydney. Sydney to Sydney. Yeah. And uh, my parents were, my dad worked in Coca-Cola, if you saw the show recently. Yes. It was on the show. Yeah, he worked in Coca-Cola for 27 years. Uh, my mom worked as a checkout girl at KFC. Now, t- talk to us about what your dad did at Coca-Cola. He poured, literally, he poured sugar into vats. I could remember as a kid going in there and they'd all be smoking in the factory, (laughs) sitting in the back. Ironically, probably healthier than drinking all the Coca-Cola. And my dad used to have to get these huge bags of sugar, which he used to take home. And we used to have them, like when I needed to go get sugar, I would go downstairs out of these enormous bags and take a scoop. So like that episode of The Simpsons where Homer finds all the sugar. Oh no, I am The Simpsons. (laughs) It's modeled on my life. Yeah, so I that love was, that. So that was... Um, Did he know the secret recipe? Would you have been able to make your own Coke at home? You know, I believed the whole fucking time that the secret recipe was in the bucket in front of KFC that oh. turned around where my mother worked. Yeah. Yeah. So I used to always think, how am I going to climb that? How am I going to get up? <laughs> <laughs> so, ta- so he worked at Coke for 26 years. Yeah, 26 and, years. And would you think that he would describe that as a positive uh, like way to have lived his life? Yeah, definitely. Was he happy, you know? Yeah, he was happy. He provided you know, he, he earned $26,000 a year and he raised the kids. I didn't know any different. So in Canada, we would be just kind of at the 
poverty line sounds so dramatic, but we'd be right there. Right. You know, he would be, he'd all the benefits and healthcare of that place. Mom earned whatever it was, a couple of dollars an hour at KFC. And that's how we were raised. The weird thing is I haven't had a drink of Coke for nearly 20 years. When was the last time you had a KFC? I, oh, even longer since I haven't eaten meat in 22 years. Right. Yeah. So yeah. Was that because she worked at KFC? Was any of your decision about not eating meat? No. I, when I ate it, I used to wait up at night for mom to come home. Right? <laughs> I'd fall asleep on the sofa. I'd literally just lift my head up and she would stick the chicken in front of me and I would just chow that stuff down at like three in the morning. You're just at home with moist towelettes prepared. Yeah, exactly. Plastic knife yeah. and fork. That's my life, Will. And then I wash it down with a Coke. But, so yeah. how does a kid, so they get married, how old are they when they get married? Yeah, well, mom, it's a, it's a, mom had a child when she was 15 mm -hmm. with another man. Okay. Uh, and uh, as my mother says, uh, he fucked me on a rock. Uh, <laughs> mom's pretty, uh, mom, mom's pretty full on. And so, um, so, but dad, so then, then dad started dating her, right? And, uh, and dad found out that she had a child and, right. and dad said, Oh, I'll take, we'll take the child together mm -hmm. as, as a couple. And how old is your dad at this stage? 72. No. How old is he? Sorry. How old oh, is he when this is happening? Oh, he would have been 18. So he's 18 years old yeah. and he's offering to yeah. take on a, another child. Yeah. I mean, that's because I, I think I, I want to linger on that for just a second because you know, I'm nearly 40 years old and, you know, I, and I think that I would have the capacity to do that, mm. but the thought of it would terrify me. It's certainly not something I ever would have imagined at 18 years of age when I was packing up my car and going to university that, you know, that, that would be part of the my life. The crazier thing was imagine having a baby at 15. So right. mom, mom felt pregnant, right, and at that young age. And then when she was giving birth, she said she could remember all the guilt, like she had to go to a Catholic hospital because that's oh, all yeah, they right. had there. And um, she, she literally was kind of giving birth, showed up at the hospital, gave birth. And what did they do? They took the baby and they gave it to my aunt. Another long story, right? So, right. Because they said that she was too young to have a baby and her sister was older. They gave it to my aunt. She was raised my entire life as my cousin, but she was actually my half-sister. Wow. Yeah. And when did you find out about I that? I found out. Well, I used to record with a device a lot simpler than this. I used to record my parents' conversation, so I used to stick a recording device underneath their chair, then go to bed. Oh, my God. Yeah. Are you serious? Yeah. And my parents used to have some wild ones, you know, and I, <laughs> then the next day I would just listen to everything. And then one day I was surprised my, you didn't become a spy. <laughs> one day I was with my friend Herbie. Yeah. He's my best friend. And I said, oh, oh, let's play and see what they said last night. And I was listening to him. I was like, fuck, she's my sister. She's my half-sister. Oh, God. But I'd known her the whole time. If this was in a movie, no one would believe <laughs> no, this. No, exactly. And then only when her... Um, so I confronted my mother years later on yeah. it, and she told me what had happened. And my sister went off to marry a Navy SEAL. And he spends his whole... So when the Iraq war was on, he was over there killing people in the dozens. That was his job. He was yeah. an elite killer, this guy. And he, amazingly, huge guy, really... Fit. But he left my half-sister, obviously, in America. She never knows where he's going. He just says, I have to leave for three weeks. So then I went over to see her. And I was 20... I can't remember how old I was. And... Uh, and that was the first time I saw her as my sister. That was just the most bizarre experience. Wow. That's, abso that's absolutely fascinating. Mm. So how do you get through school? Like if you have two parents who, yeah. you know, couldn't read at some stage, how are you encouraged to be a person who goes on and finishes school and, you know, graduates and go to use it, goes to university and that sort of thing? Yeah, well, I could remember always – I could remember always, uh, you know, walking home from school thinking, I don't want to live this life. Right. Like it's small town, Cape Breton Island, 
con- you know, not a lot of money, just, just, it wasn't a nice existence. And I can remember thinking, I don't want to live that life. Uh, My and- parents always used to say a very interesting thing about uh, being a parent. And they, it was more about your kids living at home. But they always said, you've got to love them uh, enough that they want to stay there until they finish school. And you've got to love them enough that they want to leave as soon as they finish school. You know, there, can, mm. there is that great thing in sometimes where you're from somewhere. And I, I didn't want to be at the, from the place I'm from either. I was like, well, I know that I don't want to be here. That's a start. Sometimes yeah. that's important. You know, that's one of my that, – that is one If it was of my, comfortable, you could stay mm. and you might not do what you, you know, are set out to do. That's one of my life lessons is based on that exact experience, which, which is – the path you carefully plan is the one you will never take. Right. And the notion that if you want, I could never have predicted to be here right now. I never would have imagined ever being on television. I never wanted to be a CEO. I never could have imagined that. Therefore, I could never have planned it. Right. So all these people that have all these grandiose plans to get there, I doubt. I, I, majority of people definitely do not follow the path they carefully plan. Well, let's uh, seeing that we've talked about philosophies, I did ask you to come with one. Mm. Uh, what, what would you say that it is if you have a philosophy? Uh, in, that relates to that. I would say that um, doors open through effort, not through will. So I've, I've, because I've never imagined or planned to be where I am right now. Therefore, I couldn't have planned to get there. It's impossible to make any sense. But what I did try to do throughout my life is everywhere that I went or whatever I did, if I was cleaning floors, if I was working in an advertising business, I tried to do that brilliantly as best to my ability. And then the next door opened. But most people, especially this whole another generation, they just will the door to open. They just stare at the door. And I kind of come to believe as long as you do every little node, you know, in your life, whatever that is, to the best of your ability, another door will open. But if you stand there looking at it, there is no chance. Okay. So that's not something that you just one day read in a magazine and decide is your philosophy, right? That's something that at a reasonably, I would assume, young age, you feel like you've at least adopted, even if you didn't know the words that you're saying then. When do you feel like you started to, you know, form that sort of mindset? Probably in my mid-30s, maybe 10 years ago. Yeah. Maybe 10 years ago, I, I kind of – what happened is uh, through, because I've had a fair amount of success in different areas of my life, people have always looked at me and gone, oh, you're so successful, you're so successful. They asked me how I got there. And every time I tried to explain it, I had no clear explanation. So no. I, 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 People don't want to hear it. No fucking idea. That's it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's somewhat random. And they go, oh, well, that's not very inspiring. Hey, John Sampson's put out a uh, great uh, advice book about how to be successful in business. It's Don't called. Try. <laughs> it's called Be Excellent. Other than that, I've got no fucking idea. But I also believe you're, where you come from hardens you or makes you who you are. Like I, I, I had a lot of uh, crazy stuff in my childhood. And because I came from a relatively poor family, it, your starting point does define the end destination to some extent, I think. Okay. So uh, talk me through then. You, where do you go to high school? So I went to a, a – it's all pub, we didn't have any private schools. I didn't even know what they were until I moved to Australia. But uh, there was no private school. So I went to a public school, normal school in the city. I went to the uh, – the first one was called Kobe. And I went through that as a flunk out, basically. Bombed every subject. I was, you know, I was involved in a lot of uh, – got involved very young in a lot of stuff I shouldn't have got involved in because there's nothing to do. So you turn to kind of petty crime and all right. that stuff at home. And, uh, and then I went to high school. So I just kind of – in high that's seven, eight, and nine. So by, by grade seven, I had one guy – I had one of my friends murder someone. And, and then I had one of my friends murdered. By that, by 
by seven, by grade seven. So I was still a kid, you know, and so... And I, why would people be murdering people in that part of the uh, world? Well, it, they differ, right? So the murdered one was a very close friend of mine who... Uh, people drank, drink and fight a lot where I'm right. from. And in fact, last time I went home, I was pulling one of my friends off another guy fighting on New Year's. It's Why does that happen? Just, is it just boredom? Just is it boredom, nothing else to do? Not a lot of not a lot to do there, and a lot of alcohol. Yep. Alcohol is part of the culture, so everyone's getting smashed and fighting. Um, so the guy who uh, got m- murdered, we were out with him at McDonald's, and that's not a plug. And uh, and we dropped him off at home, and he went into his house, and he opened the door, and his brother shot him dead with a shotgun. Now what had happened is his brother had gotten in a fight in the city, yeah. and the guy that he got in a fight with said, "I'm going to come back and kill you." So he, is this too heavy? Will you take? No, it? I'm, no, I just. Am I, on? Am I mean, I I'm glad too? that I've done this podcast. I feel like we've managed to make it twelve minutes in. Yeah, like people will expect every. All right, okay. Like every time I do this podcast, we, I'll be like, and so, uh, what age did you, you say? Let someone me know, converted? Will, if I'm sharing too no, much. No, this, this is a back. safe space, yes. Todd. This uh, is this is the only way this is going to work. It is quite a safe space. Exactly, it's reassuring. It's a safe space. There's a blackboard here. It's fine. This is, uh, so anyway, he, uh, he, his brother got in a fight and it was a bad fight. And the yeah. guy said, I'm going to come back and kill you. So his brother thought, all right. He loaded up the gun and waited for him. Unfortunately, the person who walked in was yeah. his actual brother. So that's the, and he was, I was very close to him. That was a shock to all of us. We were all, you know, complete to lose a, we hung out in a little gang. Right. And we kind of, that was one of them gone. So, and the guy who murdered, uh, he, that's a weird story as well. Jesus will. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a, where are we going to go with this? Uh, he, the, 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 the guy who murdered was a very close friend. His name was Yopi. And uh, he, he was a bit of a nutter the whole time. I mean, uh. We all knew that. We didn't know how much of a nutter he was. Anyway, I was away uh, at a summer camp thing, like a getaway camp. And he, with a friend, went hitchhiking. This is going to get weird, Will. Okay. Uh, his friend went hitchhiking yeah. and they got picked up by an older couple. Uh, the couple uh, took them to their destination and they went to get out. They said, no, we're not getting out. They tied the couple up to opposite each other as opposed. They stabbed the uh, woman to death and then went to stab the man and he lived. So they took off with the vehicle. He lived, got out, crawled to a station. They eventually caught him and locked him up for life. How, as a child who's, you know, 12... Do you rationalize that? Like, how do your parents talk to you about it? How is how do you, as a child, you know, deal with that? Yeah, well, that I, I didn't really deal with it because I was in it. But my parents, uh, they used it as a fire to say, "You do not want to live here." Right. You know, they were like, "This is not the life you want to live." And my, I can remember my mom distinctly telling me, over years, going, "This is not the life you need to live." And my dad used to hold his hands up. And he'd have calluses all over his hands from working in the factory. And he'd say, you don't want hands like this. So they, they gave me that fire to kind of get right. out. And then I, I went to uh, high school and a grade seven uh, uh, teacher, science teacher, I, he made me do these kind of, I, I don't know what they were, if they were IQ tests or base tests or whatever they were. And, and I, I must have scored well. But I was in, in, in Canada, they segregate the schools. So if you're in seven, one, two, three, four, five, five, they're like eating the glue and throwing staplers at the teacher. And one is all the mostly immigrants, uh, um, smart kids yep. that are doing really well. I was always in the four. Like I was okay. never in the five. I was yeah, you weren't in the five. I wasn't in the five. I was in the right. four. I wasn't, I wasn't eating the glue, but yeah. I was uh, throwing things at other people. <laughs> and, that, and then that's it. They, he, he went to the school and the next year I came back for grade 
uh, eight and I was in a uh, level three. And then the next year I came back and I was in a level two. And I guess what happened is I just got really competitive. I just refused to believe that they would be so much better than me because they had money or because they were smarter mm. or whatever. So I literally just, a switch just flicked where I went, okay, I'm going to see if I can do this. And then I, I, I applied myself. Really. Were you competitive in everything that you did at that age? Like that, was that a thing in your head that was in every aspect of your life or was it just when it came to education? It came to education. I, know, I never did sport and I wasn't involved. I, Not at all? No, no sport. I didn't have any. Because you're a fit adult. Were you, did you like run or did you keep yourself fit or were you just a kid? That's a whole other story, Will. That's, uh, yeah. I mean, the fitness comes from a deeper place of kind of insecurity and issues that happened in my life again. And it's a whole nother, that's a whole nother path. Yeah. You know? And, but so I, I did, uh, I did all right at school. And then when I entered grade 11, so it goes to 12 in Canada, uh, I had an, I had a history teacher. His name was wild bill and he was wild. He was, he was like, he had worked in Harvard and he had traveled. Like he was the only person I knew that had actually seen the world. And his whole history class was about taking us to different places. Right. It completely blew my mind. Like, and so he, now what did wild bill look like? Cause was, I have a picture in my head, but I, I actually want to know what he looked like. He was, uh, actually he kind of looked like a military guy. Like he was a bit porty and he, okay. uh, and he had short hair and, and he was rough. He was really, he, he taught two classes. I remember I asked him once he taught the, like the level one, so the elite students, and he taught five. And I, I remember once I asked him, I said, which one do you like teaching? Because he was so, I was in the one with him, you know. Yeah. And he said, Todd, I definitely like the five better. It was right. a very interesting guy. So he, he then said to me, Todd, I know this scholarship you should go for. If you get the scholarship, it'll change your life. And it's called United World College. There's, it's a very, very one, one from this part of the world, Eastern Canada will win. And so I didn't think anything of it. I didn't take the form. And then I was in Sea Cadets and I went on this Navy destroyer for three months. Yeah. Uh, and I was leaving that day and my mother went to the teacher meeting. She'd never gone to teacher meetings before, really, nothing like that. And she showed up and while Bill said, did he take that? Did he enter the scholarship? And she said, what scholarship? And she, he went upstairs, grabbed the scholarship, gave it to me. I went on I went on this, my mother gave it to me and said, fill it out on the ship. I filled it out on the ship. They flew it by helicopter to Mexico, up to Canada, and I got selected in the top 10 and that changed my life forever. That completely changed my life. I then won a scholarship. I got to, I had to leave where I was from. I had enough money that I'd be able to study, you know, at where I wanted and what I wanted to do. And that was it. I never went back. I was 16, 17 years old. I uh, am amazed by how many people's lives are changed by uh, school scholarships. Like, I think it's a thing that no one really thinks about. It's, mm. It feels like an old-fashioned system still, doesn't it? The idea of giving someone a scholarship. I but I was the same. I went to the, the local private school uh, because – not because my parents could afford it, but because I, I won a scholarship that paid for my education. And I otherwise wouldn't have been able to do that. And I certainly otherwise wouldn't have gone to a school where they had the appreciation of the arts and stuff that my – my high school did. It's kind of amazing. So, and also that idea of one teacher, because I think I find that. Do you think you were encouraged at school? What do you think uh, the qualities of a good teacher are? He he actually. It's like he noticed me. It's like he saw me. Where the rest of the teachers, you are just whatever. You're one person in the audience. It was like he kind of he just took a special interest in me above everyone else for some reason. Now maybe he was doing that to everyone else, and I didn't know. Yeah. But he was known to be the exceptional teacher in the school. He was known to be that, and he, as I said, he did both five and one. So he he was 
he was an amazing, amazing guy. But he, but you know, he just told stories of the world. And if you live in Sydney, Nova Scotia, Canada, in the backwaters of nowhere, you, you when you got these amazing teachers just explaining the world to you, it opens your eyes. Uh, but also, what you've said there is he explained the world to you. And sometimes I think that teachers forget. And look, you know, I'm no expert in this area, but I have a great deal of respect for teachers. But I think that the system we have isn't perfect either and we need to have, find some way to make teachers be renowned and revered as you know the people who explain the world to mm. us all you know to have that respect in society and then i think we'll get the right people you know to be in all those teaching positions again but um he explained the world to you mm. he wasn't teaching you history or wasn't mm. teaching you geography he explained the world to you and that's the thing is like when you've got kids there you know if you're going to teach a mass you've got to explain how math is important in the world to them. Yes. So they go, oh, okay, I get this. Mm. This is why I will need to know this. Mm. Yeah, it's very interesting. So tell me before we get But to- you know on that, Will, when you said about teachers, I do think that um, in our lives, and you probably could name your five, we bump into these unique people, like right. these life-changing, like I call them nodes. You know, you bump into them and from that bump, you will go somewhere completely different again. And we probably get five, six, ten of them in our lives. You know, people that we just hit. And and I often think, not to get, you know, goo-goo-gaga about it, but I, I hope I get to be a node for someone else. Do you know what I mean? I hope someone meets me, I can do something for them and they can go off and do something else. So I had uh, this feeling very recently. And uh, it's something I've talked about on my other podcast, but, you know, this is a new podcast and welcome new listeners. So uh, I had a reaction the other day, a really unexplained reaction to something. Um, well, there is an explanation for it, but at the time, basically I, there was some bad news and I'll get to it in a minute, but I just kind of want to explain the feeling first and then tell you. This the is story. not the bad news show. Yeah. <laughs> uh, someone that I didn't realize was as important to me some bad news happened about them and I was uh, like really upset about amazing, it and had to it? examine why I was so upset. So the news was, and people would have seen this news, is that uh, Billy Connolly uh, has prostate cancer and he had to have an operation for that. And at the same time, it was revealed that he also has uh, the early stages of Parkinson's mm. disease. And I was devastated. Now, that's not a person I know. I've, it's a person I've met, but mm. I don't know him. Mm. Uh but I would not be doing what I'm doing today without him. Like that time when I sat in that audience when I was 17 years old and watched Billy Connolly with my mum and made the decision there in my mind of what I was going to do with my life. And I realized that I've had this glorious like life. You know, it's brilliant. It's like, you know, there's highs and lows and all those sort of things as everyone does. But essentially I'm doing exactly what I wanted to do for a living. And I'm doing that and I've been able to have this nice life and meet these nice friends and, you know, if I can get money from a bank to build a house based on an idea that I had sitting watching Billy Connolly, right? And to hear that he was sick, to hear that he was unwell, that he was, you know, like suffering from something, it really affected me because I realized that so much of my happiness – is because of that path that was started by that. Well, that's a node, isn't it? That's a total node. Like, I mean, Billy Connolly is a guy who I literally have only met once in my entire life, but is like a node for me. But you know what, Will? I'd strongly recommend, based on my past Ed Hillary experience, go make it an effort to go see him and say thanks. 
So, well, like, force yourself to do it because I had this with I met Ed so, Hillary. Yeah, let's talk about he this. was my my so, well, he was my Billy Connolly. Yeah, let's slow it down a little bit and explain that you have climbed Mount Everest. Yeah, and was this before you climbed yeah, or so after? Two weeks before I went to climb Mount Everest, I had just arrived in this country. Uh, I lived in South Africa. I, I, I lived in South Africa for six years. I came here. And what inspired you to climb Everest? Uh, I. And Hillary, yeah, I'd watched and read and all the stories about mountaineers, and and I've been climbing since I was a kid. Like I used to climb lots of rock faces across okay. from my house, and I was really into it since I was really really young. And but but so two weeks before I go to climb Mount Everest, I arrive in Australia, and I'm working for a very small. I know no one. I wasn't on the ABC. You know, I, I still don't even watch the ABC. <laughs> I wasn't on the ABC. I never, well, I'm not watching anything that doesn't have commercials. That's it. This is an insult to my industry. It. Yeah, exactly. It's like free money. Uh, but. Um, so so, uh, yeah, I was working for a very small advertising agency and my first gig was for the Australian Tourism Commission. And my first gig with those guys was to go to New Zealand. I flew to New Zealand off the plane. I got picked up by a chatty cab driver. He told me the story of his life. He told me about his son, he was a rock climber. He climbed all over New Zealand. We arrived at the Hilton Hotel and he said to me, do you know that Ed Hillary lives here? And I was like, oh, of course, I knew he was a Kiwi. I just right. didn't know he lived in Auckland. But I guess he would. It's like the capital yeah, city. Exactly. Like if he was going to live somewhere, yeah, he probably exactly. does live in Auckland. But in, you know, in fairness to me, I didn't, I even, I didn't even know Auckland was a word before right. I had arrived in Australia. But and you're like, I assumed he lived on the top of a mountain somewhere, yeah, exactly. right? <laughs> so I went upstairs into the the hotel, and I, I thought, I wonder if he's in the white pages. And I looked him up, and sure enough, in bold, in the white pages, is Sir Edmund Hillary. So I phoned him up. That's also just a great compliment to New Zealand though, isn't it? Gotta love it. That's Evan Hillary can have his number in the white pages. Totally. And so I phoned him up and, and then he got on the phone and he's a big, dark, rough voice. He spoke for maybe 30 seconds with me and he said, Todd, if you'd like, I said, look, my name is Todd Sampson. I'm going to go climb Mount Everest alone. Yes. I was wondering if you could have, uh, if you'd give me any words of advice. And he said, Todd, I'm going to be around here for the next two hours if you'd like to pop around for tea. So I... Fucking hung up the phone in complete shock, called up oh the Australian God. Tourism Commission and said, I'm so, going to be late. Ed Hillary's me, inviting me over. I'm going over to Ed, Ed got, Hillary's place for scones. I get in the cab and uh, I tell the cab driver the address. Yeah. He goes, oh, you must have the wrong address. That's Sir Edmund Hillary's house. And I said, no, that's where I'm going. And he said, can I wait out in front? Like, I also love that he knew, no, where, he knew <laughs> like, where it was. He knew where it was. So I showed up and that's it. I, I, I went into his house and we spent an hour and a half together and... And then, and then I went to Everest. And now, now tell me, but I mean, without wanting to give away anything that you can't give away, just how, how does that hour and a half work? Do you sit down and have a cup of tea and a biscuit or something, or do you what? What happens there? It is I, I describe exactly what happened. So June took me in, his wife, and mm. said, "Ed's in the kitchen." I walked in, and sure enough, lifelong hero, the person I looked up to my whole life, sitting there having tea. So I sat down with him, they poured some tea, and the best way to describe it is it was beautifully, beautifully ordinary. Right. So she said, would you like something to drink? I said, yes, please. She put some bickies down, and we sat down, and we talked, and it was magical. Because in, at that time, I hadn't planned this, right? But right. I was just, so I, was, I was so scared anyway to go climb Mount Everest. Of so course. I was, and to meet Ed Hillary two weeks before, I felt, literally, I felt like a light had opened, and it's going to be like, you're okay. Yeah. That's how I felt from that. So we, we spend an hour and a half together, and, but the reason I tell you that story, Will, uh, is because I didn't loop back. So when I came down from Everest, I should have looped back and at least shown him a photo with me and signed it and said, thanks, Ed. And I didn't, and he died. Right. So this is my Billy Connolly thing. If, if you feel like that about him and he has made a difference to your life, make the effort, man. Just go find him and just say thanks. He may not 
It's nothing to do with how he reacts. Right. But you're Will Anderson. You'll be able to get to Billy Conley. <laughs> Just get to Billy. Get to Billy Conley. Well, see, my, you've inspired me on that because my thoughts weren't that big. But I was actually just like, do you think it would be inappropriate if I wrote him a letter? Like I was thinking that I could write him a letter and just explain to him, you know, who, who I was. And not that I need him to care, but just... Because the thing that I wanted him to know was not just that I was a fan and it, it had made, you know, that his comedy had made my life better. But hopefully, like if you work on the idea that the idea of the comedian is they go out on stage with the aim of mm. bringing happiness to people, that like hopefully over the years some people have got happiness out of my work as well that was created by him. So he kind of is partly responsible for all that happiness as well. You know, even of things that he wasn't involved in. And I think I would like to know that. He, if someone, you know, but I don't know. Like, it's embarrassing. Go see of. him. Get some, get your people to sort it out. And, I do have people. And go see him. I mean, get, I must admit, I do have people. Get I should those use people. them occasionally. That's, those people, the 25 or 30% you pay them, whatever you pay them. Uh, that's to do that. You right. regret it, Will. I know I did. I, yeah. I, I, I then sent... A photo to his wife after he died, signed yeah. to Ed, and they ran it in the paper and they ran a story in the City Morning Herald. So I felt good that they at least acknowledged him, you know, everywhere yeah. as they should. Yeah, it's amazing. So let me talk, let's talk about um, Everest then, if we can. Mm. So uh, when did you decide you were going to do it? How long then is the process to, you know, get ready to do it? And what, and what is that process? I don't yeah. even know. Because we've talked on my other podcast, uh, Tofop, quite a lot. We had one episode where we went, just went through facts about Mount Everest. It was the anniversary of Sir Edmund Hillary, and and uh, so we and just the people who die and the danger, mm. the real danger in that journey. Uh, like, what was it about it, and and how did you go about it? I think that I, I mean, I've been Mount so Everest was one of the last mountains that I did, right? So I've been climbing my whole life, but I think I always climbed chasing that kind of approval from whom I don't know, but you know, it's, it's a, it's a way of filling the hole type yep. thing, you know? Sure. So I've, I've done it my whole life and uh, I've wanted to climb Everest since I could probably about 13. Like I read about it and thought I want to do that. And I want to see if I could do that and all, all that came with it. And so I think I spent 20, maybe 25 years training for it. Like people say, Oh, did you do six months of, you know, I, I did like <laughs> right. 25 years of, yeah. of training. And in the end, I wasn't going to do it. Like right. I kind of gave up. But on are you notion. saying that if I started now, now you should be right. at age 64 <laughs> or so, I could really nail it. Why don't you hold out a bit longer and you'll set some <laughs> world records. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just wait 20 more years. I started training at 70 started when at I got seven. my fourth set of fake hips, <laughs> but I've really nailed it at 95. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, so that's so I don't. It was, so what then happens though? Is it, so then you decide, okay, I'm going to climb yeah. Mount Everest. And then you decide how. So yes. you decide whether you pay to go in a group. So you mm -hmm. could pay, I think now it's 60,000 US or 70,000 US, something like that. And mm -hmm. you join a group of people, nine people that go for the summit of the mountain. Or you can decide to do it the, the way I did it, which was I wasn't going to go with anyone. I was going to go, well, no, there are people all over the mountain. But uh, I'm going to go, I'm going to pay to get on a ticket. Mm -hmm. So there's a ticket and there's 10 names on a ticket and it's $10,000 each to climb Everest. That goes straight to the Nepalese government. And so I paid to get on a ticket. I never met any of those people. Uh, I didn't know who they were, but I had some base camp support with a guy called Tim Ripple, who was an amazing climber. And that's it. So then it took me three months to do it, roughly three months to do it from the top, from Sydney to the top, back down to Sydney. Mm. Yeah. And it was, uh, it was, it was hard and cold, uh, but it was amazing. Like it is like living, is it that 
three months is like an entire lifetime. Like it's like living out an entire lifetime. The ups and downs are all so exaggerated because of the danger and all the shit you go through in your mind. It's like it's like speeding up your life mm. and stacking it into three months and saying good luck with that and see how you go. Uh, when you've climbed Mount Everest, do you keep climbing, or yeah. are, or are you like I'm done? I climbed Mount Everest. No, I, I, well, unfortunately, then a year later or two years later, I had children. Yeah. You know. Unfortunately for that. If, uh, if, we just, yeah. if we just take that quote yeah. out of context, yes. that'll sound horrible. Uh, but uh, yeah, you know what I mean. <laughs> and uh, and then I just promised my wife that I wouldn't go above like 6,000 meters yeah. so that, until the kids are older, you know, and now I'm teaching them to climb. But yeah, it's, I mean, climbing is, is the ultimate in, you know, people talk about moving meditation. It's the ultimate in that because you forget everything. You forget you got a family, you forget you've got bills, you forget your job, everything goes away. Relationships all gone. The only thing you think about for three months is, am I cold? How's the weather? Am I physically okay? Am I feeling sick or not? And what should I do today? That's it. There's no room for, oh, how's life? It's just too intense. You're, yeah. you're too in it. That sounds terrible. <laughs> <laughs> and you've got to like cold. You can take weed, right? Yeah, you can. <laughs> that's fine. I can. You can. Yes. <laughs> what do you got in your pack? Look. That's why the Sherpas drink. Yeah. That's exactly it. <laughs> All right. And do you have Everests in other aspects of your life, do you think? Like, you know, is there an Everest in advertising? Is there an Everest in television? Like, you know, do you feel like that's, you know, you, you have these sort of you know, things that you see as being – because, you know, you said you're not a person who plans your career. Mm. But in each thing, do you go, oh, that would be like the Everest of that? or Not really. Like, no. I, I, I don't really – I guess, like I guess, from a physical mountaineering perspective, Everest is the symbol of it's the highest mountain in the world. Yeah. So it is the kind of it is the top, although not nearly the hardest. You know, it's just the tallest. But no, I don't. I kind of wish I felt like that in my career. I wish that I could just tie a bow on it and go, "Look, I've done it." But it just seems to be ever changing. So. Do you think uh, that there will? So tell us how you found advertising. Uh, I was studying, um, I eventually went on to do an MBA in South Africa. That's how I got there. Yep. And the only reason I chose that is I had another scholarship and, and the criteria was I couldn't study in North America, which was perfect for me. Mm -hmm. And Nelson Mandela had just been released and I, I kind of admired him, but didn't know him. And I literally said, is there something down in South Africa? And there was, it was an amazing school in Cape Town. And so I chose to spend the money in Cape Town. I went there and I did an MBA. And in the second year, halfway through uh, the lecture marketing lecture, she broke her back and she ended up in traction and she got guest lectures to come in. And one of the guest lectures was a creative director. He spoke for 45 minutes about creativity, imagination and linked it to business. And I went, that's it. And did you know then, like, you, did you go, okay, this is something that I could do as a career? Yes. And you know the funny well, thing? It was a you, light bulb moment? It it just light, well, here was the light bulb moment, that I could make the link between creativity and business. Right. That was a light bulb moment where right. I went, oh, because from what I knew of business, and I worked for a bit as kind of an investment banker, and it was all in the cubicle. I didn't think there was anything else. I thought that was corporate life. Yeah. And then someone said, no, 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 you could have this. So your whole every day can be about thinking of good or bad, but thinking of new things and imagining solutions to problems and laterally thinking. I went, fuck, all right, let's right. do that. And still have money. And still have like, money. Yeah. We've combined those two things. That's it. There's a sweet spot on the Venn diagram where you don't have to be boring to have money. Totally. But there's not met that many jobs. But there's a cost to yeah. it, you know, in working in an industry that's a demand generation business. But so anyway, I went down to meet him 
Whereas I was completely blind. I like that term, by the way, demand generation business. Yeah. That's how I'm going to describe comedy now. <laughs> like instead of, oh, people just want Some new shit all the time. Smile generation business. Right. Everyone's, yeah. But everyone's like, oh, people just want new shit all the time. I'm sorry. No, it's a demand generation business. That's what it is. So. <laughs> That's well, what it is. Of all people, you know what I mean. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so, so yeah, what happens? Then? I went down to see him. And you know what he said to me? He looked at me in this dismissive kind of down his nose at me and said, good luck with that. How much do you remember that moment? I clearly remember that moment. I remember that guy. I, me- I remember thinking, fuck you. Is that guy a node? Uh, like in a different way? Well, I've never really have thought you- about that, actually. Because I have a theory that sometimes there is those, like there's a few people in my fuck you file that I think have had probably more influence over my drive and my career than the people who positively encouraged me. The ones who told me that I couldn't do it still stick in my mind. I still know that moment they told me that I couldn't do it. And I'm like, oh, my God, that was 30 years ago. You're fine. Like, why are you still hanging on to the fact that if you saw you know, Esther Cribbies from fucking high school, <laughs> that you would go, fuck you. See, I fuck you. Yeah. But at the same time, I think, well, maybe I wouldn't have done all this stuff if I hadn't like had a bit of I want to prove you wrong as well. You know what? I never thought of this. I've had I've not hate, but a mild form of hate for this bloke. But maybe you're right. You know, maybe because I remember thinking I remember standing and it was down in front of the NBA class. Like the class was in kind of an oval shape. And I went down to see him. He had long hair and disheveled, you know, disorganized guy. And And he looked at me and said, you know good luck with that i do remember thinking that's a closed door yeah right yeah because he's talking he about was what, big in the industry as right. well in south africa he's one of the top if i said his name and anyone knows the industry they would know him you've gone to the door you know to use your you know saying you've gone to that door mm. and he's just slammed it shut in your face mm. now you have a choice then at that point to go all right then uh you know i'll go off and and i was very close be put you, off. strange thing is i was i was at the third round interview with mckinsey's i was going to be a management consultant uh-huh. thank fuck that fell through but <laughs> I mean, but you know I, I, that would have been a stressful life but uh he, he i mean when you say it like that it's true he closed the door and i had another one open but i still chose to go through that door yeah that's, I mean, if you, making those choices yourself are very important. Sometimes I think when someone says no to you, you, you genuinely are going, oh, well, despite that, I'm going to do this, and you own your choice. Mm. And once you own your choice, you're not just floating around with you know, where you've been going. I think that can be really powerful. So what happens now after this? Well, then I, I entered the advertising business uh, quite senior because I had an MBA, so people immediately thought, you know what you're doing. Right. Uh, and I had no idea what I was doing. And I entered a company called The White House, and it was an amazing time. I learned on the job very fast. I never got in as a junior. I was stuck as a senior uh, person straight from the beginning, and, and I learned a lot. I loved it. I mean, it was an amazing time. How do you, if you're going in as a senior into an industry where you don't have experience, did you deal with jealousy and resentment and stuff like that yeah a bit of that and, and I, did you have to learn were you a person who was good with dealing with people or did you have to learn how to deal with people uh, i was always okay with dealing with people and and but i there was a lot of jealousy there was just because at the time in south africa the mba really meant something you know having those really helped with opening doors for business nowadays you know it's 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 a dime a dozen really with mbas everyone's done them anyone who's confused in corporate life or doesn't know what to do academically, they do MBAs. Right. Because it's just like the neutral zone. You know? That's all right. Anyone who really wants to be an artist when they grow up but are still putting off their appearance and hoping that they're going to have an education do BAs. So it's fine. Fair enough. <laughs> um, yeah, so 
yeah, anyway. That okay, was, so uh, you went there and, uh, and you, you, did you love it? Do you feel like at the start you're like, okay, I love this? How Were you like nervous about the, the way your job was going? Did you find the job hard at the start? How did you deal with those things? I started as a writer because I didn't know what to do, right? Mm. So I was – but I started as a writer, but I ended up doing a lot of strategy work because of the MBA title. So the, mm. the guy running the business would take me into business meetings because the one thing that an MBA – does really well is it provides you with a language, a language that you can use at all levels of an organization. So I used to, I, I could speak that language. So I went to those meetings. So I quickly realized that I would be better in the bridge between creative and account management. And that's strategy. And so that's how I fell into that because I, I, I'm a creative person, uh, but I'm more of a strategist, you know, the mix of those two things. So, and that, that was my calling card throughout my life in the industry that what was, what I tried to combine was creativity and strategy where everyone else was one or the other. Now, is there any irony uh, in the fact that someone who's come in here with a self-professed motto that they don't really plan ahead hmm. uh, is an expert in strategy <laughs> or is that, <laughs> is that why you're good at strategy? <laughs> Oh, for a guy who at the start of this podcast said, I, I don't you, really man. plan anything. That is why I can plan it for other people. Uh, <laughs> then, I'm yeah, talking well, about life's journey, yeah. not how to make $2 million in the next two years. But, right. Yeah. But they're both strategies. Yeah, right? they're both strategies. There is something ironic that I'm not one for my own life strategy or believe that they really work other than getting into the next door. Uh, yeah. That that was my job, strategy. And, and strategy is such a cool position in an agency. So if you imagine... It's, uh, I'll go with it anyway. Uh, a fishing analogy, which is yep. often used. So the strategist's job is to get the boat over the fish. And the creative's job is to throw the fish, the line in and catch the fish. Right. And so a strategist is like a navigation system for a plane. And so it's such a brilliant uh, position in an agency. Okay. So how do you start rising through the ranks? When do you first get a promotion? Uh, I get them when I'm there. So by the time I was ready to leave South Africa, I was at what they call strategy director level. So I was at like number four in the company by the time I left South Africa. And then, then in, in this, the advertising business, it's all about leapfrogging. Every place you leave, you need to end up in a better spot. Right, that's basically how it works. Right, most people don't leave to end up in a worse spot. So, <laughs> right, and so <laughs> there's but, a lot of agencies. He's going, you only work at this agency twice. Right, once yeah. on the way up, once <laughs> on the way back down. That's it. <laughs> that's it. Um, and yeah, so, there's a lot of comedy rooms like that too. <laughs> I'm sure there yeah. are. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. So every time you get a new job, you, you're trying yeah. to go into a better position or a better, you know, place to be doing the the job. Yeah. Right? So I'm climbing a lot now. So I'm living in Cape Town. I'm climbing yeah. a lot. And at the and what's time, living in Cape Town like? Oh, this is unbelievable. So what era like, is this? Tell me what. The, the tell me what the years out, were. It would be amazing. Right. Uh, <laughs> uh, that's where that was the slogan that lost Todd the South African tourism <laughs> they know campaign. What I mean. Um, but uh, oh, hey, we're in Vaucluse. All the South Africans are here. Yeah, that's it. They knew. So all, yeah, exactly. Yeah. They're all out. <laughs> uh, it was an amazing, amazing place. Like I was living at a time when it was in this big cultural transition. So Mandela's just released. Black government is in power. It never had black government. They weren't even allowed on you know on the buses together. Right. So now you've got this whole transition where you've got a population of whatever it was, 88% of them are black, 12% white, the rest are kind of ethnic, uh, smaller ethnic groups. Now, forever, the white has controlled all of it and and the Africanas, now it's a complete switch. So living through that was an amazing time. Like it was, even when I finished the MBA, there were two black people on the MBA, Sandile 
who became a really good friend of mine. When we finished the NBA on the graduation, we went down on the waterfront of Cape Town. We go to go into a bar. Everyone's piling through. It's our last night. We're all having a good time together. And they stopped Sandilli at the door. And they wouldn't let him in because he's black. I mean, that's amazing. I was completely shocked. I was like, and the guy was huge. I mean, it's know? amazing. This is in our lifetime. Yeah. Like this you- is 50, this is 50, 17, this is only 17 years ago. And he's standing there beside me and, and we're getting in an argument with this guy and he's just looking at us. Like, I don't even know what he, it's like we were speaking a completely different language to him. And so we ended up yanking the rest of the guys out and we went somewhere else. And then Sandili went on, I heard recently, to become some kind of massive oil tycoon because awesome. a, black, a black man with an MBA <laughs> yep. is like, they didn't have to be go to recruitment. They were like, oh, you're right. Hey, there's two of them <laughs> front, on the course. Hey, front of the line. <laughs> yeah. It's front of the line now. And yeah. unfortunately, Sandile knew it. At that time, there was as many uh, black people with MBAs as there were white people in the NBA. Well done, Will. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much. True. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> uh, okay. So what gets you out of South Africa then? Um, I, I read, I was, I was climbing a lot and traveling a lot. And then um, I read in the newspaper in the Cape Times that nine people, uh, were killed with a hatchet about 20 minutes from my house. And that kind of, it was a switch for me. I went, okay, I can't live here forever. I love it. I never wanted to leave, but I will never be able to have a family here. And it's not sustainable for life, but it was unbelievably brilliant. And that was it. It's I amazing kinda- though, that again, at this point in your life, you have made a decision about where you're going to go because of the place that you're at being inappropriate to be anymore. Mm. Like the decision, like, you know, the same way you left you know, your childhood home, not because necessarily. Well, you're freaking me out because I am not putting these things together on my own. Right. I feel like, I feel like this is going to be the perfect podcast <laughs> for me. I love nothing more than having these conversations, <laughs> okay. but you know, you, you went away from your childhood home because you're like, this is not the place for you. You need to be somewhere better. It wasn't like you have to go there. Mm. It was like, you can't be here. That's right. Like that's even what your parents said. You, mm can't be here not you need to go there Hmm. right and again when you're in south africa your decision isn't i want to go here it's i can't be here right which is really interesting even to go back to you know that idea of you not saying in your own life i want to go here Hmm. you're saying i just i can't be here anymore so i want to go somewhere and now when you you say it like that i do get the short-term thinking then right because i'm not i don't know what the next destination is i know i just have to deal with the one i'm in yeah and if i deal with that one well something else will open up. right and so i I, then it was time to leave like time for me to leave and i wanted to continue climbing and all of that stuff so i but i'd learned to live in the south and once you learn to live in the South, having grown up in the North, you can't go back. Right. And so I looked around. I thought, where can I live in the world? South America. I don't really speak Spanish. It would be tough. Uh, different parts of Asia. wasn't really interested in going to. And uh, this funny country that I knew very little about, but uh, romanticized about, uh, Australia. And I packed up one day and I, I contacted a headhunter in Sydney. Mm-hmm. And I said, look, here's, I gave him my CV and where, what I was doing. And I said, could you contact you know, the top 10 agencies in Australia? And I'd like to come and, and do a kind of tour type yep. thing and meet them. Well, I was, re- so the, at the time, the number one agency in Australia was a, a, a private agency, Australian company called the Campaign Palace. Russell has subsequently closed that. He won't like me saying that, but, uh, no. but uh, lots of stories. <laughs> God love you, Russell. I'll never forgive you for that. Uh, but um, so I, I then interview at 10 agencies, got rejected by all of them. 
And I was, it was, it was a Friday afternoon, and the only agency of the 10 that were on the list that wouldn't see me is the Campaign Palace, the uh-huh. one I wanted to see. Of course. Best in the country, best, one of the best in the world. Uh, and so I went there. I thought, I thought, fuck it. The headhunter said they don't want to see you. They have someone in the job. All right. So I went there. I showed up in the reception, and uh, the receptionist went and contacted the guy who was running it, Reg, and Reg said, look, if he wants to wait for 45 minutes, I'll wait. Uh, I'll see him. We're in a meeting right now. So they put me in a room, a small room about the size of this with a TV, because at that time only television ads were made. Right. And their television ads, all the AFL ads, all the old stuff, they did all the first leap stuff that was ever done. It was fucking mind-blowing. I was sitting there going, holy shit, this is the best I've ever seen. I waited, 45 minutes went, one hour, one hour and a half, two hours, and I think I'm not going to sit here and wait. What are you doing even in that time? I'm sitting thinking. I'm stewing, actually. After Do you have a newspaper, a magazine? I watched, li- the, I watched the commercials yeah. twice. That's what I did. I watched their reel twice. And then I went to my hotel, and uh, I left my details at the reception. I went to my hotel, and I was leaving the next day on Saturday, and I got a phone call saying would you like to come back? They're sorry about that. They're having a barbecue on the deck. They used to have barbecues every Friday night. I go there, a bit pissed off. I speak to the guy, Reg Bryson. We speak for maybe 45 minutes together. And he looks at me and he says, how much money do you want to earn? And I went, what? And he said, how much money do you want to earn? And I, I went uh, and I said, which was clearly too low, excellent mm. strategy. I've used, it. I've used it so many times throughout my career because then you can't complain about how much money you earn because you just told me how much right. you earn. And then I f- came back and I worked at the best agency in the country. That's how I got to Australia. So again, I leaped onto a very solid form, platform, you know, like to leap off, to get on the pa- in the palace and then to leap off of that is a very good platform for upwards. But again, it was one of those times where someone closed the door and you went and you know, went, no, I'm not going to put up with that. So you, you start working in advertising uh, in Australia, yep. I mean, uh, and let's skip forward a bit to uh, when we meet doing our television shows. This is like six years ago now, right? Yeah. How does – where are you at your career at that point and what happens when someone rings you to say, hey, we can do a TV show? Yeah, well, I was just – I just become CEO. So literally, I just started in the job as running. So I was the head of strategy. So I was number two for a number of years. Yep. And then I would just took over the top job. And then I had a message in, uh, from, in my office uh, from Andrew Denton. And when you get a message from Andrew Denton, and, and I'd lived in Australia for a while, so clearly I knew who he was, you take the meeting. And I took the meeting and he explained it to me. I'll never forget. That we, we, all, we joke about our two different versions of this story, right? Because he... he, he he remembers uh, it slightly differently than me, but this is what I remember. I remember that he, he came in my room with some other people talking. They talked about it. They explained the idea to me, and I just went, I shook my head, and I said, I can't do that. I can't do an idea that's going to take the piss out of the industry. I'm running one of the largest companies in the country. It'd be crazy to do that. And he said to me, okay, um, well, are you willing to do a workshop? And I'm like, workshops? That's, that's our bread and butter. I'll do a workshop, no problem. Right. So I, uh, he says, okay, can you do it on Saturday at 10.30? And so I show up on Saturday at 10.30, and uh, I knew something was weird. It was felt a bit funny. There were people mulling around, and someone said, Will Anderson's in there. And I was like, holy shit, I was a Will Anderson fan uh, beforehand. And uh, literally, they brought me in the room, and, and I was completely fucking shocked when I saw you sitting in the center of this table, 20 or so people in the audience, three of those big cameras there, and people I didn't know on the panel. And we literally said, okay, we're going to do the workshop now. And I was like, what workshop? <laughs> 
when do we sit around with notepads around a table? Because that's what I'm. That's the workshop I came for. And then right. we did. We did so the show. It was a definitional issue. It was a definitional issue. And then we did the show, and that was it. I kind of. I just really I enjoyed doing it. And then Andrew had a conversation with me where he said, "Todd, I promise you, this is not." a quiet send up of the industry. Well, so let's linger on on this moment for a while. So suddenly there's a point where, you know, he's saying like, you know, um, and I don't know how exactly this happens, but I know that having been behind the scenes on that, you know, we had a very short list of the people that we thought were capable of doing the show in general, which was our list of people who, you know, would be hopefully on the show in the first series. But also we were looking at, having two regulars and there was only three people who were in our opinion possibilities for those jobs but i'm guessing that much wasn't being explained to the other I didn't people know that no. no uh uh so how how is that conversation because you're talking to andrew denton who we might stop down before we get to this and I'll, i will mention because uh, i imagine this will come up over the course of uh, uh these podcasts andrew denton is one of my notes and mine as well so um people have probably heard me tell this story, but if you're new to the podcast, I apologize. I'm probably going to tell stories over and over. That's what this is going to be about. Uh, But when I was 14 years old uh, in the country watching television, we used to have two TV networks. People these days, you know, where everyone can't even watch TV without getting it on fucking Twitter or watching on split screens. We didn't have two screens. We had two fucking TV networks. There was the ABC... And there was a composite commercial channel that just played bits and pieces of, you know, other commercial network shows and then local ads and local news. So Great ratings would have been easy back then, wouldn't it? Oh, it's one or the other. They dominated. You're either an ABC person or not ABC yeah. person. And so uh, when I was at that right age, you know, that, uh, you know, that if you believe in that sort of Malcolm Gladwell, you know, uh, idea of like the right place at the right time. And it was one of those things where there was two television shows. One was called The Big Geek. Uh, and one was called Andrew Denton's The Money or the Gun. And uh, The Big Gig was a, uh, you know, a, a TV comedy program uh, that had some of the funniest people on television on it. And But it had Doug Anthony All-Stars who I fell in love with. And it was the first time I saw people like, you know, Jim Moen and Wendy Harmer and Greg Fleet and all Amazing. these people do stand up. And it was inspiration for me. I thought that was the funniest and most irreverent people I had ever heard in my life. You know, I was like, people can say this? Yeah. And people are fine with it? And they actually enjoy it? This is brilliant, right? And the other one was Andrew's show, which it was as funny but more serious. Like the money or the gun for people uh, who are listening um, who don't know that show, if there's any way of finding old copies of that show, I've watched some of them. And some of them are a bit daggy, you know, because it was 30 years ago. But some of them are still hold up today. They did one that won a bunch of awards called The Year of the Patronising Bastard and if they put that on TV today it'd still be confronting to people and it's still wonderful television. And he used to have this running joke where every week you get a different band to do a version of Stairway to Heaven. He always had that great thing of I'm doing something serious here. Like I can do a whole show about disability but you know at the end people are also tuning in for yeah, the Doug Anthony also is doing Stairway to Heaven. Mm. And he's taken that through all his shows, you know. That's one of the things when we were putting together Gruen was that idea that it can't just be about learning or people will not enjoy this. Mm. You've got to remember, you know, the band doing Stairway to Heaven at the end, you know. Some people are tuning in for that. So um, when I was 14, I was obsessed with those two shows. And so I knew the names Ted Robinson and the name Andrew Denton, you know, off by heart. And then I was excited later in my career when I got to work with those people. But the most hilarious thing is that I am 39 years old and I have only ever done two major television projects, The Glass House and The Gruen Shows. 
And the first one was produced by Ted Robinson and the second one was produced by... Oh, that's amazing. Like 14 years old when... That's amazing. They first started influencing my life and then at various times that both of those men have influenced my life since then. I I find that amazing. Like it blows my mind a little bit. And I wonder if those people are all around us but we just don't bump... Like we don't bump into them. Do you know what I mean? Like we don't connect at some level or we don't see them because... They don't, I don't think they just randomly show up. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, I think they're probably all around us. Okay, so talk to me about your uh, experience with Andrew Denny. So he, uh, my experience with Andrew was, I, I also admired Andrew and, and I loved his humor and his quickness and all of that. And uh, and so I, his way, t- I, I do remember another thing, Him, the other reason convincing me to go to another workshop, right? So I was like, oh, I don't want to do another one after I did that one right. with you. And then I'm like, I'm not certain about this whole thing. Like I was happy, but I was like, I don't want to go through this again. I don't want the stress of it. Right. And then he said to me, he goes, Todd, we need you to go there because we don't know if people sweat under the lights. Yeah. And I went, what do you mean? He goes, Todd, sometimes we just put the lights on people and really rolling for real. And people just start sweating profusely. Now, are you shaking your head like that's true? Yeah. Because <laughs> I thought, I started laughing thinking, that is an excellent con job. No. It's See, a, if it's, I sweat. No, well, I mean, he, he means it in two ways. And you've seen this over the history of doing our show. Mm. There are people that are quali- who are experts in the industry who are wonderful at their jobs who can't do our show. <laughs> you know? And, and it's just because... And there are people who aren't industry heavyweights who do fantastic jobs on the show because it's about, you know, making a TV panel show work, which is a mystical art that no one really understands. But we just do our best each week to understand it better and try to make it work. But some people literally sweat under the lights. You know, people, they, they, the sweat comes through and some people just, their tongue gets big and they, they can't do because suddenly they're in front of an audience and they see a TV camera and they realise that millions of people are going to see what they're saying and it gets inside their head. God love him. He's one of our favourites and we both adore him. But I remember in season one doing it and, and sitting there at the, at the panel and my I was sitting there thinking, I'm feeling really uncomfortable. My balls are frozen. Like I'm thinking, why am I so cold in my groin? Right. I then looked down and Dan had a fan yeah. below his legs, but he had kicked it and shot it straight up between mine so the whole time it was just blowing this cold air on my balls while well, i was doing the show he was a great example of someone who literally sweats under the lights yeah it's horrible it always makes you look like you're like a lie detector <laughs> like if people are sweating people are like i don't trust him anymore <laughs> why is he sweating because i'm in a suit and there's hot lights on yeah there's actually really decent reasons <laughs> yes to be sweating but somehow at home you all think i'm dodgy now so Andrew, Andrew basically just gave me the trust me yep. story. He said, Todd, you have to trust me. This is not about, you know, this is not about us having some underhanded, you know, mission against the advertising industry. You guys will be free to say, it'll be unrehearsed. You'll be free to say and do whatever you'd like to do. And I, he said, you're going to be opposite a guy called Russell Halcroft. And I said, who's that? And he said, oh, he runs another agency. And I went, oh, okay, well, that'll be interesting. And then the next workshop, Russell and I met with you. And then it all went down. Like but in that moment, and no one could have ever predicted it, but no one could have predicted the idea that six years later, your and his names would be so like you're like fucking Lennon and McCartney, you know? <laughs> like there will never be a point in your life where mm. you won't be at least in some way associated yeah. with each other. Yeah, and we the three of us have been, not to keep with the analogy, but the three of us have kind of become nodes for each other. Like right. we we in some ways have laid down a show, hopefully that people will remember. You know, and and 
people talk to me about, you know, is it all genuine with you and Russell? It's absolutely genuine. Mm-hmm. But we we don't we're not good enough to act. So we're <laughs> we're like we're just we're just being who we are, and we have differing opinions on things, uh, but we share similar values in a lot of ways, and uh, it's all genuine. Like he does, we don't plan this. We don't sit in the back room and think it just comes out. And it's not that I'm right or he's wrong or the other way around. It's just two different people. But television is a very different industry, uh, and I want to talk a little bit about this because, of course, people see just the television show which is what they're meant to see by the way like i'm not judging people for this but i have people ask all the time about whether you guys get along and i'm like you know they share a dressing room like they juggle together they're friends they have a lot of human values that are identical they just have a couple of things when it comes to the world of advertising they disagree but also we're making a television show we have 35 minutes. If two people say the same thing, we tend to cut one of them out. Yeah, that's because there's no fucking point repeating it. Yeah, but it. if two people say opposite things, it almost always makes the cut because we want to hear people to hear you know opinions. So disproportionately, it does seem like you disagree more than you probably actually disagree. Although when he did one day say to me, we both went to tennis with our clients and he said, um, do you want to come to my house afterwards in Melbourne? I said, yeah, sure. Russ, would be great. And he said, but beforehand, let me take you to the school I went to. I nearly died inside at the wealth of the oh, right. school, Scotch College. He he took me down to a field, right? One of the, one of the fields in the middle. And he said to me, he said, uh, uh, unless you are at the top, you're not even allowed to touch this field. And then we, we were walking back and I said to him, I said, what the fuck's that building? It looked like some heritage building. And he said, that's their hospital. <laughs> they have a hospital? I thought, wow. Oh. That is something else. Right. Good old I love Russell. He is a dear friend and I've 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 grown up with him on television. Like right. our, our relationship has evolved in front of an audience. So this is but now I want to talk about this idea of suddenly you're a person. So you're someone who is well known within your own industry. You've you know, you're you're the boss of your company now. Like, you know, so I imagine within the industry people are really familiar yeah, with you not, now. Not hugely well known, no. I mean yeah, they would be familiar with me. They would have known that I took over running that company. Right. Yeah. So but that's not like being on TV, is it? No. That's completely different. So and because here's the most they people, went from knowing me in the industry to like hating me immediately. Well, I imagine we're, we're that some people would have, show. right? Yes. Yeah. Because I certainly think originally there must have been a fair bit of the industry. And oh, look, I know personally there was, there still is mm. some of the industry who don't like the show. Yeah. And so it's a big choice for you to say, I've just become the boss of this thing. I'm going to go on this show that I know even if Andrew Denton is right, yes, like even if I can trust him, hmm. there are still going to be people in my industry who suddenly just got pissed off at me, either because they genuinely think it is bad for the industry, or B, they're just jealous that it's yeah. not them or whatever. That's a big choice to make. Yeah, and also, just very quickly after the first couple of two apps, I realized that, sure, it was our choice to say what we wanted to say but it was a bit like enough rope for advertising people you could go as far or as little as you wanted to go and most people under the pressure of performance will go pretty far yeah. you know and uh, and i know there are many times in the show where i've said things and 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 i've gone wow that i think i've just gone too far there and i just came out it's too late it's already out there you know and so uh, yeah i did i had the, and, and i just resigned myself to a very simple philosophy i i said i'm going to say exactly what i would say in a boardroom i'm going to say on television 
I'm going to be absolutely no different. I'm going to be this. I want people to that know me in the industry or know me from my company to go. He's exactly like that. That's he would say that about my brand. He'd say that about my advertising. And that was my philosophy the whole show. Even when I got and I have been in very sticky situations where I've had a go at some of my own clients' work on national television, and I've had a go at some of my own work on national television. I've just stuck to the principle of would I have done that if the cameras weren't on. So your life starts to change a bit because you're on the telly. How do you notice that changing? Uh, first year was just a massive adrenaline ego rush. You know, it's like, wow, okay, people are recognizing you. We're on a hit show. The show in the first year was enormously successful. I mean, do you remember what it was like? It was, everyone was talking about it. It was doing millions of people every week and it was a surprise hit and all of that. And so it was just getting, getting noticed and feeling I couldn't watch the show. For the first kind of year. Interesting. So you didn't watch it at all? I couldn't all? watch it, no. I couldn't. Uh, Did I, you try to? I tried, yeah. Because I, I find it uncomfortable to watch mm-hmm. myself. And then this year, because I'm uh, you know, co-EPing the show, I because you know, I'm in the edit a bit more and a bit more responsible for some things, first few episodes this season, I sat down and watched them and yeah, gave some notes the next day and all those sort of things. And then I got about halfway through the season and went, look, it's going fine. I don't yes. need to look at it That's anymore. Because it. it is hard to watch yourself back. But But, you know, at the same time, I imagine that in your line of work, you've got to also sometimes do things that are uncomfortable to improve. You know, people have to, you can't just think. So I imagine you as a person who wants to do things well, were you taking advice or were you getting other people to watch it and give you advice or were you just like, how were you, you know, dealing with that? I had to, no, advice to be in the television. Look, I never thought it would last. No, none I of thought, thought we would do year. We do no, a year no. together. I mean, that's sensible. You're absolutely yeah. right about that. Nobody thought it. Would so last. I wasn't like laying down the foundation for <laughs> a long career. I was like, okay, well, this will be fun. I get to hang yeah. out with Will Anderson and we get to muck around on TV and all of that. Uh, and then after the first year, I, I, the second year came and it was another hit. Yeah. I thought, okay, well, this is becoming more permanent now, right. <laughs> uh, and my life is permanently starting to change. Yeah. Uh, and so at that point, did you have a moment where you? Uh, have to make a decision about whether you're comfortable with that being a thing. Hmm. I, I sat down and talked to Naomi, my wife, about it, and I said, "You know, this now it's going down the point of no return, right?" So now, I think it started for me. It started because in- she hasn't signed up to that. No. So let's pause down here for a second and talk. And again, I'll just ask questions, and in the enough rope way. Yeah. But, but please only give me things you're comfortable with. Yeah, because I don't yeah. want to pry around. It's not about yeah. that. But I'd like to talk to you about. You know, love mm. and you know, did you find love in Australia? Where, where, you know, yeah, how, how did that happen? Yeah, I was walking. So, I had met this woman a long, long time ago, years, seven years ago, and I bumped into her. So, I didn't know her and I knew a bit about her. Her name was Naomi. I didn't know that. I did, couldn't remember that. And then uh, this is going to sound fateful and strange. And I told us at my wedding, and a lot of people said stalker, uh, but uh, I, <laughs> well, so, so far that seems to be yes. the way you've achieved everything else. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just stalked Edmund Hillary, stalked your first job in Australia. I mean, it seems to be a successful strategy. Yes. Success through stalking. That's your second book <laughs> after, after work oh, well. And God. I've got no fucking idea. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah. yeah, so I, I, I met her and then six years later, one Saturday, I thought about her. Yeah. woke up in the morning, not in a drawing pictures or googling or type thing, but I just thought about this woman. And I remember her saying to me that she lived in Broadway, like around Broadway. Like yeah. That was six years ago. So she could have moved and whatever. For some reason, I went to Broadway. I said, I'm going to go see. I went to Broadway. I'll never forget. It. I was walking uh, by uh, DeCosti's Fish and Chips. And I saw this tall woman from behind. I always joke that 
it was love at first from behind. <laughs> uh, she really fucking hates it. But, uh, I bet she yeah. Does. So I, I saw her. And I literally just went whoop straight into the fish shop. She turned around. She saw me. She I couldn't remember her name, and she uh, reached out and said, "Hi, I'm Naomi." And I said, "I'm Todd." And that's it. She walked away, and I remember thinking. She's the one. And then three years later, I wrote back with a diamond in my pocket to that fish shop. And she had no idea. And uh, I got on my knees and I went to do the thing in the middle of the fish shop, but I should have warned them beforehand. She starts bawling her eyes out. Some guy thought I hit her. So he sort of comes shoving me and she's, I'm looking up at her. Everyone's surrounding us in the fish shop. And I said, now she's just crying. And I said, now would be a good time to say yes. yes. <laughs> and she said yes. And that's how we, and that's, that's how we got. So that was a three years uh, relationship from cost. De Costis to De Costis. So, do because you say you know that you knew then. Mm. Do you believe in that? And where? What is that? If that is a real, you know, thing? I, no, I don't believe in that. Um, I've, but I did feel like I knew then. I yeah. don't believe that's a general thing. Do you know what I mean? But I, I, I it did happen to me. Uh, what the the thing that it's uh, it's a t- were, were you brought up with? Uh, did you feel like you were a person who wanted to? find someone to get married to to have kids like was that something that you would have said was important or at least yeah if you don't have a plan was in that sort of vague that will happen at some stage it, i wasn't discouraged from that right. so i never really thought about it but i wasn't like i don't want to get married you know what i mean but i was not i can't wait to get married yeah type thing or that's part of my plan or anything i was never never thought about it and like did that. you and as and as a person did you would you describe yourself were you lucky in love or unlucky in love when you were growing up up until that point uh I just never really. I don't need details. It's not but war you, stories. No, no, but do you know no. what I mean? Like, I never, do you feel like? But I've never really thought about it. No, yeah. I'm neither of those. Like, yeah. it wasn't a big part of my life. Like right. relationships, I was so self-focused, mm. mountaineering and all the stuff. I'd never really relationships were always tangential to me yeah. to my life. No, it's hard never. to say to somebody, uh, "I'm in Nepal for three months. Could That's you please it. feed the cat?" <laughs> I've tried. Yes, yeah. but the, you know, you asked about how do you know. Uh, uh, the, only, the only thing I know is that for a lot of people that I met through my life, I related to them. I, I use kind of a tree analogy. Like I've related to them at the branch analogy. Like we either catch up from work or we know each other. But with her, for some reason, not that the tree top of the tree thing didn't work, but we definitely related at that level, yeah. like at a root level. She, her, for her, <laughs> root level sounds terrible, but uh, her, she was- <laughs> In Australia, it's- yeah, Yes, it's yes. at a rooting level, yes. yes. Uh, her, you know, she, her family was uh, a very rich, wealthy family in Burma. Mm-hmm. And one day the government came and took everything, everything. So they they were kicked out of the country and Naomi's family came here with $35 and they struggled uh, in Canberra, you know, for 30 years of her life or whatever. And so- I, I've somehow I relate it to that. I kind of felt like I met someone who gets me, who gets me. I don't have to explain it. Like, yeah. and she knows a bit and then she gets it. Right. As opposed to never going to get it. Right. And I think that, I don't know if that's the, the, the foundation of a great relationship, but at least I felt less like alone. Like I felt like I didn't have to explain it. She just got it. And what about um, having kids? Was that something that you, you know, that you thought, okay, now we're going to have kids or was that something that just kind of, again, in that way that you just keep living your life and then it sort of naturally Yeah, happened? it's a keep living thing. Like I, kids were, I always avoided thinking about it because of climbing. And then when I met Naomi, I, we suddenly started to talk about it and then it just became a bit of a reality. But no, I never thought, I never really thought. That's a good message for anyone listening. If you want your kids to not, to not be knocking someone up, getting interested in climbing. Do you know what my mother did to my, my sister, which I thought was brilliant? She showed her childbirth when she was young on TV. Oh, 
And yeah. my sister like didn't want to have sex for a decade. Well, that's the equivalent of like the dad locking you in the cupboard and making you smoke all the cigarettes, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, that's it. So, okay, so th- you have children. Two girls. I've got a, a seven-year-old Coco and a four-year-old Jet. Does that make you change your mind about life when you have children? I mean, people say that it does. Do you feel like it did to you? It makes you change your mind about money. That's the real thing it does. And so what do you mean by that? Well, it starts to become where you, you start to think about providing for them more. You start to think about what are they going to need? What are they going to need? Because we don't need much right. to really live our lives. But suddenly you start to think that they're going to need a lot. Uh, but no, it didn't really change my life. It, it do you, are you worried though, even with the money thing, how do you deal with that idea of you've just yeah, sat here and told me that you and your wife mm. are the people that you are because of the struggle that you had to get yeah. to where you be. Uh, and I, I, and I'm sure you think that that is part of the reason you have been successful. Like how do you then balance, because your kids are not going to be in that same situation unless you make a lot of terrible decisions between now and when they're in high school. But but you know what I mean? Like is that something that you guys talk about? Is it something that you think, you know, is an issue? Yeah, well, it's going to be an issue because Naomi is more give them, like not give them everything, but, you know, she's saying, oh, we need to make sure that we provide for their university and maybe one of a house and all all the stuff. And I'm like, I don't want to provide any of that. No. And she's like, well, what do you mean? I said, well, I, I want them to figure it out. Like, I would be completely cool if they decided they didn't even want to go to university. If right. they decided they wanted to do something else with their lives. Like, uh, and anyway, uh, we have very different views. Where Naomi, as a parent, sees we have to provide everything for them. And I don't. I see all we need to do is kind of guide them up to the door and let them jump through it and see how they go. But I, it, is a very, it must be a very difficult thing for parents, that one, because I'm a bit of the belief. But maybe I'm, it's just self, you know one of those self-fulfilling things or self-reassuring things where I'm because so, that's what happened to me. You know, I finished high school and my parents looked after me and I lived at home until I finished high school. And then I went away to, to university and I got a job and I paid for education later. So through. did you go away to university? Yep. Yeah, well, that's, that's a big difference. I went to Canberra. It was like, a, it, it, that seemed like a good halfway between where I grew up in the country and a real city. Yeah. Like it eased me <laughs> so into that's like, perfect, you actually. know, it was like a gateway city yeah. <laughs> that I just go to on the way to a real big city. And, um, you know, because I, I grew up for 17 years on the road my dad was born on. So, like, you have to ease yourself into the, the big world at some stage. But I always think that, you know, part of the reason I've been able to be successful in my career, because my career is a, a career where it's very easy to be lazy. Mm. Like, you know, because you're your own boss. So you can do as little or as but much. when did you realise that you had the kind of talent, the gift? Like, when did you realise? Because as a comedian, like, I, I just imagine it as the m- most fun, insecure career that you could ever have <laughs> beyond television. Cause television, you can kind of fake it or you can get directed right. As a comedian. You're just exposed. Yeah. No, look, I mean, the thing is, I think it's like if someone's lost weight or, or gained weight, you know, there's that, there's never a moment where you go, Oh, right now I'm that person. Cause I'm here every day, you know, every day I reevaluate my thinking about, you know, what I'm doing based on whether I'm doing TV or whether I'm doing radio or whether I'm tired or whether I'm at the start of the tour or the end of the tour, the thinking about the way that I do my job and what it means to me gets constantly reevaluated. But there was just a point I, the point that I would say is there's two points where I was like, Oh, okay. One was the day that I decided I was never going to do anything else. Like I'd been doing it at that point for probably five or six years when I realized I was ruined for any other job. Like, <laughs> you know, this was so much fun and, you know, I had had so much fun doing it that I never wanted to, you know, I, ra- I ran away and joined the circus and I was never going to get a real job. 
And the second one was when I realized that I didn't mind sucking to get better, which came, I'm going to say, even maybe a five, another five or – like I'd been doing it probably 10 or 12 years before I really got to the point where it was more important uh, to me to be better at it. Like I was willing to go through the short-term pain and the short-term ego loss of sucking for a while yeah. and taking a risk to do something that might suck in order to get better. And I reckon that was probably the – they're the two points where I'm like, fuck, I'm really locked into this. <laughs> I hope this turns out well because I have made either a great or a terrible decision. <laughs> so um, we, we, we've, uh, I want to wrap it up. So we, I could talk to you forever and, and you know, we'll have to do another one at some stage and get to you know, some of the other things. But um, I want to round it off, if I can, uh, by talking about the idea of – um, yeah, belief more generally. Do you believe that there is like, are you guided by some by some sort of spirituality? Do you believe in God? Do you, you know? Was is, is any of that ever been a part of your life? No, the only thing, and it's the only thing I'm going to teach my kids, and whether this is true or not, but at least scientifically makes sense to me, is karma. That's it. That's the only thing I've ever gone by. If you you the simplifying it down to, you know, you do good, you'll get good, you do bad, you'll get bad, you know, and that's the only thing I'll teach my kids. My kids will never step inside a church or, or a mosque or, or a temple unless they choose to, you know, they'll, but the only thing I kind of talk to them about is karma. Cause I, I believe that. I, I don't know if I believe it because I think, do you that, believe it's like, yeah, do you believe it on the level of it's an actual life force or do you believe it on the level of that, you know, it's you know if you do something nice for someone else by that very nature the world is a better place that's it More and you- if you have that knock-on effect of like if you you know blast your horn at that dude in traffic who pulled out and didn't look but nothing really bad happened hmm. and then they are pissed off so they take it out on the next person and you know blah 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 that yeah. sort of you know that we're giving and taking yeah is that- that's what i believe like it's the universe around us that it's the kind of knock-on and and i also believe that like I've had an amazing life. Like if I if I died tomorrow, I hope I don't. I would be if someone said I. I mean, I would. Be I thrilled. hope you don't either. But you, as a marketer, know what a boon this would be for my first podcast. <laughs> well, Do you know what I mean? Just don't set that up. Yeah, no, 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 I'm not going to be walking out. Yeah. Somebody's a bag over my. It's head. not a stunt, yeah. but I'm just saying if you happen to die yeah. incidentally. But I, if I did, I'd be extremely happy with everything yeah. I've done. Like, and I, but I don't. I'm not a happy person. Like I don't run around going, "Oh, Mr. Positive." But it, when when I'm when you're when you know when you recap your life like you just made me do i look back and i think it's a it is a combination of luck a combination of 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 talent in in some areas and just a combination of being where i am you know and giving it a go being in the right place at the right, right time place right. and and every time i just i think i said this right at the beginning but i i've faced a kind of life of adversity but i don't look back at my life as the terrible life i see all of those things as moments that i bounced off of in some ways and done something else and uh, yeah. do you think that this is a like do you think that you will keep going and changing careers and changing lives and doing things like that as you go on or do you see yourself going okay i really love this now and this is something maybe i could do for the next like do you have thoughts like that well that's what the new documentary has done to me now so it's bumped me in a whole different direction you know where i've, I've done this documentary now and redesign I, my brain redesign which my brain, yeah. people in australia can see on abc iview if you haven't caught it yet or uh, thursday nights at 8 30 uh there's one more episode to go and if you're listening to this overseas um i assume it'll it be available be, yeah. at some i don't stage. know when discovery channel it looks like oh yeah. brilliant yeah it's it's a great show for that sort of thing and i think you'll find that 
I mean, I I was actually talking to Justin Hamilton uh, just this morning about this. We were taking the dog for a walk and we were talking about that show and I was like, I could see you doing that, t- you know, 10 years of those. Like, you're such an excellent communicator, like, uh, in that area of people who want to watch something that's intelligent and they want to learn about the world but they don't want to feel like they're being lectured to at the same time, you know, mm. making it fun. Uh, oh, that's really interesting, Todd. It's been um, – I mean, I, again, we could just keep talking but I feel like, you know, this has been a good – I feel like we've got up until now <laughs> yes. and then we can delve into it I'm feeling it lighter. Do you feel like that? Yes. Do you feel like this has yeah. been yeah. – you've learned – have you learned something? I've Do you feel something. like you've learned something? You've, you've patched together my life in a way that I haven't seen it. Well, the, the interesting thing for me is like I, have, I probably haven't talked about many of the things that, you know, people who were like, oh, I hope they talk about Gruen and what it's like or whatever. I don't know what people expect from this. But what I wanted to talk to you about was the things that I don't know about you, I guess. You know, like instead of – the things that I do know about you, which I'm sure if we chat again will be things that we, you know, end up talking about. I wanted to kind of, you know, I, we've worked, worked together for six years. This is yeah. a thing that people sometimes don't think as well. Like you and I, our lives are in, inextricably linked it's, forever. It's amazing, isn't right? it? Right? Yeah. But we don't really – I mean, we see each other every week and we get on very well, but mm. it's not like we get to sit down that often and have a chat. So no. that's why I've this got a podcast. This is one of the biggest chats we've had. Yeah. <laughs> I am only basically what people haven't worked out yet is I don't want to talk to anyone outside this room outside it being recorded and broadcast. Oh, there you go. I'm essentially like a dictator who just wants everybody to hear every thought and every conversation. Could you hold that until I pull this mic out? It will's got a new podcast. Yes, he has. He just can. Anyway, anyway, okay, we're done. Thank you, Todd. Cheers. 